Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, and welcome back. Uh, this week, I think what's bringing me the most joy is that I spent quite a bit of time uh, traveling through central uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, and the leaves are already changing. The fall aesthetic is unbelievable. It's a very like calming and just beautiful experience, I think, to just be driving around in a typical Midwest fashion for prolonged periods of time, looking at the fall scenery. I was in some very, like, rural areas, which we'll get into today's podcast. Um, uh, Cornfields and just bright pops of orange and red in the trees. So that's um, fueling me this week. Um, I don't get very long falls in northern Minnesota, and fall is my favorite season. So to be able to experience um, some amazing scenery during my travels within the past week has been uh, really nourishing. Um, I want to talk about an interesting piece of feedback I got about um, Midwesterners that I have never heard before. So I've had the fortune in my paid job to connect with an artist in residence here in northern Minnesota who um, is here to facilitate the world premiere of a musical that they uh, contributed to as the writer. So the musical is called Maxa, the maddest woman in the world Um, and it is a horror musical centering themes about trauma and healing. The main character um, is a tragedian um, who has portrayed a gory death in the theater um, numerous times and so the trajectory of the musical kind of follows her storyline about how she's internalized some of her experiences portraying these gory violent deaths and how that's carrying into her personal life um, and so the the artist the um, musical theater writer Mika Kaufman is a trans mask multi hyphenate um, queer artist who does a lot of things with musical theater and is based out of Brooklyn and originally from Maryland um, and is here in northern Minnesota working on this musical um, for the world premiere here in Duluth. And I had the opportunity to hear from Mika um, and hear their story, hear about their experiences with doing this work, hear about some really fascinating stuff that they're doing, um, where they're located trying to build a musical theater union of sorts um, to really aid trans people in getting better uh, working conditions in the theater, right? And so in this whole conversation, right, Um, I ended up asking Mika, right, like, what are some things that you've experienced in the Midwest that are interesting or different than where you're uh, from? And they said (laughs) that they have observed that Midwesterners seem to have this infatuation with milk. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that's true. It's not true for me, but Mika said that it was weird for them, um, at least with some of the folks that they're uh, staying with or that they've encountered here, that like folks just drink a glass of milk, um, like they would drink water or just like drinking a glass of milk with their meal. Um, so that's a piece of feedback that someone from, uh, the Northeast has provided about Midwesterners. And that was one that I had not encountered before. So, um, don't know if that's true. 
but I'll take I'll take the feedback. Um, I highly encourage checking out um, the Maxa, the Maddest Woman in the World website um, to learn more about that musical. There is a music video of one of the pieces from the musical available on the website, and we'll have that posted on our website at sgdinstitute.org under the Take the Last Bite podcast program tab. Uh, so we're going to get into this conversation today, um, again, speaking about kind of rurality and just the nature of the places that that some of us have lived. We're going to talk about some of the misconceptions of rural queers and acknowledge the fact that they even exist. We'll talk about resource allocation and political energy, um, and we're also going to talk about... Um, messaging and experiences that we've had in various places that we've lived um, that kind of transcend this false binary of rural versus urban. So uh, take a seat, grab a tall glass of milk apparently, and join us for this episode of Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but (laughs) we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's, that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. So yeah, why don't we get into it by going around and just like sharing who we are, right? Who's contributing today? Got some rad folks. Um, and then talking into like, what are your personal experiences with like urban and rural queer spaces or queer experiences? Really easy question, I know. Hi, hello. Um, My name is uh, TK Morton, or I go by Tristan. Um, My pronouns are Z, Zier, and Ziers. Um, When I think of urban queer spaces and rural queer spaces, I think about how urban queer spaces are like the dream they're like a utopia type of mm. deal. Um, when I was growing up, um, that's all I could think about growing up in like a, you know, like a mid-sized Michigan town. I wouldn't say it's a suburb, but I wouldn't say it's rural. So I would say it's like in the middle of that. Um, it's like pretty, it's like very much a college town that I grew up in. Um, but it's, it's the desire to, um, like leave and like find something better and knowing that like your little hometown is not it but then at the same time realizing for me that I neglected just like a huge part of queer life which is like rural queer people Mm -hmm. um I used to live in Kansas and um even though I lived in another college town in Kansas the vibes were very different um, in the sense of queer community, um, and it was really interesting to see. It was a like a lot of older queer folks that like had businesses and like um, just were like living their like cute little dreams of like oh I'm gonna have you know my white picket fence in the yard and do all these things. But then at the same time, you had um, young. Um, queer kids that were, um, queer and trans kids that were fighting and were 
um, desperate for something. Mm. And so I think that like thinking about like urban and rural queer life is seen very differently. And it wasn't until very recently that I thought that like urban queer life was like the heights like you deserve like this is where you need to be because that's the only people that are going to serve you but me as a black trans person that's not true and knowing that yes there are higher populations of black and brown and indigenous folks in urban communities that are queer and trans that doesn't mean living in those communities are the best thing for you Mm -hmm. and so that's like a lot of things that like I'm currently thinking of when thinking about urban queer life and then um, rural queer life. But yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so I am Michelle Walters. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, so about 45 minutes outside the city. Um, so I had a little bit of opposite experience of going from a really large area, lot like a very large high school. There's a thousand students in my graduating class. Um, and then my family moved to a town in Northern Michigan, um, uh, high Amish population. So there's a lot of navigating uh, horseshit when you're driving down the street. Um, just a very <laughs> different, <laughs> very different experience uh, compared to Chicago suburbs. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, I think it was like the most isolated and alone I'd ever felt in my life to be out in, you know, what I consider the middle of nowhere with no one. Um and yeah, so just kind of drastically the opposite, just craving getting back to a city. Um, I'm in Grand Rapids now, which is also kind of an interesting dynamic because, you know, there's all of these businesses that have, you know, the trans flag up in their windows proudly displayed, yet everything's owned by the DeVosses. And- <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And so it is just like a little bit of kind of cultural like whiplash to be like navigating Grand Rapids. Um, But kind of interestingly, even though I'm more of a city person in general, I've gotten into the farming industry um, for my uh, full-time career and have been discovering all these amazing queer folks in the farming industry and, you know, which I always considered very you know, old cis white men, which is still a bit, uh, you know, the vast majority of ag, but it's been just like really cool to see like farms in cities and queer farms out in the country um, and that community really developing, which has been cool. I'm Justin Drinky. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, my, my youth was marked by two very distinct periods. I was born in Chicago. Um, and at the time, my when my parents were together, we were pretty, pretty well off. And we moved around a lot uh, across various, various states in the Midwest. Uh, but it was always urban or suburban communities. And, you know, had a very, very urban experience up until the end of fourth grade. Uh, and then at that point, my, my parents divorced and I moved from, at the time, suburban Chicago 
to a tiny farm community in Southeast Michigan. And that was a drastic shift in, in my, my experience and something that really shaped how I started to perceive the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving from this, this uh, very wealthy suburban community into a pretty poor community um, where uh, we, you know, didn't have a lot of food to put on the table unless we grew it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, We had, uh, you know, Michelle, you just mentioned that you had a thousand people in your graduating class. My graduating class from high school was 86 people. Um, So uh, a very different, very different experience. And so, you know, it it was in that community that I started to come to a recognition of my own identity um, it was in that community that I that I came out as gay, and it was really challenging. I think being in in that smaller community because I did not necessarily have a lot of modeling. Um, there was no possibility models that I could necessarily perceive as to as to how that would work. Um, you know, the only examples of queerness were TV shows like Will and Grace, right? Or, you know, Ellen DeGeneres on ABC. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, those are the things that I, I, I navigated to because those were the only things uh, that existed, you know? And so we'd get home from school and, and turn on the TV to watch Ellen. And even though it was never even that good, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a a queer pe- person doing, you know, being on on TV, and that was the only connection that I had uh, to to queerness, with the exception of of an, an emerging uh, queer experience on on the internet, right? You know, as I was coming out, as as is is about the time that that uh, MySpace was becoming super popular, and you know, various different chat rooms and everything. But that was also impacted by the fact that we had dial-up internet. And so even like the access to online spaces was limited based on the infrastructure that existed in that rural community. Um, And so I I, I think a lot uh, about how I didn't necessarily see a lot of visible queerness or gayness in, in that space. And it's only been recently that I've started to unpack that like, oh, there were gay people there. Mm-hmm. And I use that distinction purposely, right? I, I'm not gonna say that there were queer people there, but there were gay people there. And I'm, and I'm coming into that realization now that, oh yeah, there were gay people there, but it was one of those things that nobody talked about, mm. right? It was a very much happens to be, we just sweep it under the rug you know, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of situation, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I wish that there had been more openness uh, because I think that would have been really useful for me trying to explore my own identity at the same time that I'm trying to get used to this whole new life situation, transitioning from an urban to a, a rural community. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I think it's interesting because Michelle went to like a pretty big school 
Justin, you went to a smaller school. My school was mid, so I had 300 people in my high school graduating class. Um, I usually say 306 because there were at least um, six pregnant women that also graduated at the time. So I count their, um, their fetuses. They were, they were six months plus along. So like I count them, but yeah, I think it's interesting that we have like large and then small and then like I'm in the middle. Yeah. I, I think I'm on the larger end then. Cause I think my graduating class from high school was just literally just under like 500. Um, and what, so, so if somehow folks are just tuning in past the intro, hi, hey, hello, RB, they, them pronouns. Um, uh, I was born and grew up in St. Louis. Um, and what's, not to get in the weeds of it, right, but what's difficult to talk about St. Louis um, is that it, it takes up a lot of geographical space, right? It spans quite a large piece. And so I would say that where I lived, right, exists in this kind of gradient um, of the city. I will forever and always call myself like a city slicker or an urbanite, right? Like I very much have an affinity to more urbanized spaces. Um, but the the dynamics of St. Louis were one in which like city proper was like a still like a 25 minute drive from most places kind of immediately surrounding the area. So there's kind of these like levels um, of, of layers to kind of where I grew up. And so when I think about kind of my experience spending like 21 lives, 21 years of my life primarily living there, 21 lives. It feels like it. <laughs> that felt like it too. Um, that like, when I think about when I was coming into my queerness, which was slower than maybe establishing a network of friends who were gay, right? And going to gay spaces with them, right? Going to the 18 and up gay bar, or then eventually being 21 and going to kind of the stretch, the Grove, um, the stretch of gay bars in St. Louis, it, it felt extra like, like rebellious to not only be going to these queer spaces, but to be going to these queer spaces that were downtown because that's the household that I grew up in, right? It was already really problematic. It was already like really dangerous for me to be queer in where I was at home. But then there was this additional layer that has a lot to do with like racism and other nonsense based on one of my parental units to like then go to these spaces being downtown. Like I distinctly remember having my car broken into when I was at one of these gay bars when I was younger and feeling more mortified that I would be discovered as to have been hanging out downtown than necessarily that I was at a gay bar. And so those mm. experiences are really like interlocked with me that just like those, those were things that like just were not okay. Even though I would say that like where I grew up, like was, it was just essential, like just all, like all the things and like all the experiences were, were interrelated with like the city, but St. Louis itself being just this giant greater metro area. Um, I still have this kind of higher affinity for, you know, being an urban, you know, urban person. So then leaving um, St. Louis and going as close as possible while still being able to pay in-state tuition to go to undergrad <laughs> in Kansas City, right? That campus is pretty much situated right in the city. And so then that felt even more affirming where I could be openly queer, right? And really come into some learning about myself as a queer person and then also be in a space that like you had access to everything and you, you know, just, it was no, no, you know, thought about like being in these spaces and, and having to like worry about who might find out because that everything was just right there. Um, and then spending about two and a half years in Kansas City, 
and deciding it was a wise idea to go to grad school in Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> um, <laughs> TK Why? and I probably have a Why? whole separate chat about like Kansas. So when Why did we do this? I don't know. Just, I don't know. Right. And so just like the, the reality, like University of Kansas is just such a complex space, right? But it is situated in a college town. And that's the first time I'd really lived in a college town. And I think even the comparison between that experience of two years in Lawrence, Kansas, you know, and understanding the dynamics of like living in a red, a very red state, right? A very conservative state that pulls, right? Pulls, you know, folks, pulls students and employees from those surrounding areas informs the nature of that college town. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. right, I felt very comfortable, but also never so sure in that comfort, right? It was a very complicated experience because there was a lot of really affirming things and amazing conversations happening in Kansas. But folks really like to tout that like Lawrence is a blue dot in a red state. And I would say it's like purple at best yeah um, and growingly maybe more you know balanced but just that you know that was a really different experience coming from two cities and then a college town and then I get to where I am now in Duluth Minnesota which like if you're looking at the state of Minnesota is one of the larger cities technically but in my experience as someone who spent time in real cities (laughs) and a college town right I would say that Duluth is this very unique experience that I'll, I'll kind of continue to point out right as we get into this that like it's technically a city by nature of its size but has small town trappings that really impact how community works how resources work you know how like space works and that's been really frustrating because you've got this populace of people but they're really up in each other's business in ways that I would say feel more reminiscent of my understandings of kind of smaller locales and that's been a really interesting experience but also really hard to tap into because the size does not match the possibility and that has Mm -hmm. been really hard for me. You know, I, I I heard this kind of conversation about College Town too, mm-hmm. and I currently live in in a college town, and it's it's kind of a fascinating experience. Um, I was really really excited to to le- to to go to college um, and to go to what I perceived was a city um, at the time, <laughs> um, because you know when when the township that you live in is is literally one intersection uh without a stoplight right oh yeah um compared to uh (laughs) actual people um then you know I was really excited for what that possibility could be um and it was it was really rewarding uh to to go to that space um there was a lot of opportunities that I had um in in college, not to mention uh, Mumble Tech and forming the institute, all happened because of the of the of the college choice that I made way way back when, right? But like, I was really excited for uh, going from that r- uh, rural space in into um, into the college town. And what I didn't expect was the clickiness that that existed mm-hmm. um being in a smaller community yeah there were still people who were closer with other people but like when you only have 86 people in your graduating class like there's not really that much room for clickiness 
because you're, there's, you know, you're in classes with everybody that's, that's in your, in your class. Right. And like, by, by nature of being forced to be in proximity to each other, like there's, there's some type of uh, relationship that develops. And that's not to say that like, shit didn't go down, right? Like there was still bullying and drama, right? But like the, like the rural drama was just like nothing to prepare me for what I feel like was the drama that existed in, in a college town. And now still being in a college town, like it's wild how like there seems to be two different versions of the same place. You are either connected to the university and within the university bubble, or you, or you are not that. Um, and there seems to be like a really strong divide that I think I've heard often referred to as town versus gown. Um, and it's interesting because like there, there's like a little bit of crossover between like what I've now perceive as like the baby queers coming into college, even though like their understanding of like queerness is way more expansive than I had at that point in my, when I was like, uh, coming into college, but like, there's there's maybe a little bit of crossover. It's also been super complicated by the fact that like nobody has been out doing anything for the last eighteen months. So yeah, uh, maybe things will be totally different when when uh, as things open up. If if you know if things continue on the right path and we don't have to continue to worry about variants and and that's a whole separate conversation, right? But there's like there's like the urban experience, right? So like, I, I think about like, okay, we went on family vacation to Chicago, right? And that felt like, you know, one, you know, one like possibility, right? There's the rural experience, but then like college towns are this whole other entity that exists um, that has its own separate dynamic. Yeah, they're weird. They're, they're like, they're not gonna lie. They're kind of cultish. Can I say that? <laughs> they're, they're like kind of cultish. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's interesting. So where I live now, I live in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and um, there are a lot of colleges here. But also at the same time, it is probably one of the smallest, larger cities. So technically, the metropolitan area, if you include both St. Paul and and uh, Minneapolis, it's like uh, like a million people. But Minneapolis itself has less than half a million people. Um, and people say it's like, it, it's, a, it's a large city with small town feel. Um, but something that we have is a lot of colleges. So I work at one of the private liberal arts colleges in St. Paul. And all of the liberal arts colleges in that area with the exception of one are within two miles of each other. So if you walk from one college, you will hit another at the same time. And then across the street, there's another one. And that whole area, that's very cultish. I can feel it in my bones. I don't live in that area anymore, um, which is very nice. Um, but thinking about like me, like growing up in my hometown, there was a, there was a clear divide of the community and campus. And so thankfully I'm not in places like the University of Kansas or UW-Madison and in Madison, Wisconsin where the college is everything 
in that town. Um, even though Madison, Wisconsin is the capital and it's a large city, everything revolves around that campus. Um, and so, so yeah, I think about that a lot. And I think about how college towns, you grow up in a college town. It's like you, you know everything about the university, but you've never attended it. And, it, and that's how I felt when I went to undergrad um, in my hometown, knowing that we had a community college, a four-year institution that had master's and PhD programs and a private liberal arts college um, that was right next door, which I loved and I wish I went there. Um, it's like really interesting to think about the cultist, the cultist nature of college towns. Mm -hmm. I remember a few years ago when I brought my partner to visit Lawrence for the first time, we went to like Walmart to grab something simple and he was so astounded by all of the like flags and like pennies hanging from the ceiling that were Jayhawk and like KU oriented, <laughs> right? Like so like, like this random, like this chain corporate store situated in this college town was still part of like the imagery was still bought into like the thing and just that that would not be that's not really like the thing that you expect in other places right like where I currently live where you know there's one state school one public state school there's a few private schools there's a community college and there's some tribal colleges for the most part like the surrounding area doesn't really care right like it doesn't really engage with the reality of any of these like universities or colleges existing here unless it has to do with sports which I think is also like a, a um an element of like urban and rural right like what is your community kind of like rallying around like what is the binding agent of some of these spaces right when you've got college towns a lot of it is yes the college but also like the sports at that respective college at least that's my experience right like I also remember feeling like folks who went to Mizzou as someone who's from Missouri myself, right? Like there was this weird mentality of just like, that's all they could talk about. Sorry, Mizzou friends. But just like, it felt like this experience that like folks who went to Mizzou could not talk about anything else <laughs> besides going to Mizzou. Um, and I, I think like, I think to kind of like, you know, circle that back to kind of the, the conversation we're having about these rural and, you know, urban experiences is that that is kind of like, I don't want to call it a liminal space, but I think college towns are kind of this like amalgamation of ideologies around like, what does it mean to be in community? What does it mean to have resources readily available? Like we could have a whole separate conversation about just the, like the availability of resources that don't really exist in like you know, rural spaces based on however, you know, you can't walk down a gravel road in the same way that you can walk through some campus buildings to get snacks or to go to a pool or to like just access things that like are not really readily available to people unless you're in a college setting. Um, so I, I think like that is actually a really good um, like benchmark for what does it mean to have resources available for people? What does it mean to have access to people? Um, and like having like space, like literal, like physical space to, to gather and like coexist with other people. Cause like in urban settings, that's kind of a default, but you also almost have this oversaturation um, of options. And then in rural spaces, some of the tropes is that like they're under-resourced or they're old school or they're kind of behind, right? And that might just be one of my own you know, assumptions and perceptions that I'm happy to have us break in this conversation. But like, that is kind of one of the perceptions and doing the work I do here with 
students in northern, mostly rural Minnesota, right? And like having done work at Kansas, when you've got students coming from these more rural spaces, what I'm seeing, right, is having to like navigate conversations where folks are, are pulling from resources that are very antiquated right very like old mm -hmm. school and just trying to like break that but also understanding like that is the point of reference like that is the wealth of information or the dearth of information that exists in some of these spaces um this is making me think of there was a woman i used to work with who went to elma college um here in michigan and um even though i grew up in illinois i was born in illinois my whole family is actually from elma michigan and it's a teeny tiny little town, a lot of pig farms, um, not a whole lot of people. The one activity <laughs> is going to Walmart and walking around. That's it. But this woman I used to work with, she went to Alma College and was talking about how, you know, we don't leave the Alma bubble. The townies are weird, like, and just like the level of kind of snobbery, <laughs> if that's mm. a word, um, directed at rural communities like there's no one worth knowing in a rural community and I was just like okay I guess screw me then my entire family is there and had like grew up there and is still there but all right I do think sometimes you see like oh I'm just going into this rural space for this specific purpose and I'm not going to bother engaging with the community right and you know that mentality of like feeling better than mm -hmm. but like who's gonna grow your food if these rural mm -hmm. spaces don't exist Right, right. Yeah, it was the Alma bubble. It was they were what they referred to the campus as, and they did not leave it. Mm -hmm. I feel like that that bubble is um, the personification of liberal arts colleges because <laughs> I feel like I hear that everywhere. It's like, oh, we're in X bubble, um, and I I think it's not the fact that they that the that folks coming into whatever community they're in into the community into that college i don't think it's a that issue it's the fact that the college wants to keep them out and so mm. i think that's something to name because um you know you you kind of see it at like larger state institutions but not as much right but especially at private liberal arts colleges, they, they are willing to keep you out. Mm. Um, I, um, the college that I work at um, does not bring a lot of folks in from the Twin Cities themselves. Um, and a previous institution that I worked at only focused on urban area no they didn't they didn't focus on urban area they didn't focus on urban areas in the state they were located in they focused on urban areas that was out of state so chicago la um new york but milwaukee was an hour and a half drive and they weren't like getting kids and students from there from those schools but they would go out of state to bring in talent into this into the state um and so i think about that a lot and but also too i think about how um we wouldn't be where we are in the sense of queer work in queer spaces if rural if rural queer and trans people did not like strive for their dreams honestly mm -hmm. like and and even now like 
there's like a huge resurgence of folks that are trying to move out of urban areas and go back to rural communities and go back to like their roots. I think a lot about um, the work that's being done in Appalachia with like so many rural, like specifically black and brown rural queer and trans people that are like, I don't want to move to the city. This is not where I want to be. So they live in Appalachia with like, you know, their, you know, their pickup trucks and their PBR. (laughs) Right. And I think it's really grand and I think it's really beautiful, which shows that queerness is not a monolith. Transness is not a monolith, especially blackness and brownness and um, all of that is not a monolith because there are folks that are willing, that want to live in rural communities, that don't want to be in urban settings, that still want to organize and still want to like find support and find community, whatever that means to them. It just looks different and it, and it is different. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that it, it can be different and it's fine for it to be different. Cause I, I told her myself for a long time, I was very much a suburban queer. I was like, I don't wanna move to a big city, blah, blah, blah. Like hundred thousand or less is fine for me, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now I basically live in a place that's like, you know, like the biggest place I've ever lived in my life. Um, and it still feels small, which I like, I like that feel. This feels like a really good pause point, like as a good preface to take the breather break, because then we can dive right back in, because I think you set us up so nicely um, to then um, talk about some assumptions and stigmas in the next in the next bit. So you're listening to Take the Last Bite, a podcast produced by the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. The Institute is proud to produce the Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference, the largest and longest continuously running conference for queer and trans college students. Learn more at sgdinstitute.org. Yep. So yeah, TK set us up real nice to be on our way to a conversation about some assumptions and and stigmas. Um, about kind of rural queerness and urban queerness and the dynamics between um, the two and also this like complex situatedness of like college towns in that. Um, so specifically, right, where I think I'd like to talk about where you, you were framing for us was this pressure to like move to urban areas because of this perception and in many times reality that like urban spaces are so resourced or like has, you know, so many available options, right? Like I think like all of our various experiences would be really valuable to kind of name for this as far as like, did you experience a pressure if you were living somewhere um, that was not urban, right? Or do you feel like you know, that's something that draws folks um, to certain geographical locations based on where community is or where resources are and how that is problematic. I think a lot about um, our history in the U.S., like queer trans history in the U.S. It was young, closeted, gay, lesbian, trans people um, that did not feel safe in their Midwestern, Southern homes and they moved to the coast for a better life. Um, And that's like, and that's like, I think something that has to be acknowledged in our history is that like, this isn't just, this just wasn't like for aesthetics, this was for survival. And a lot of, and it also showed for the folks that could move um, at the time, there was a way out for them. 
And they were like, I would rather lose my family and lose everything that I had than to, than to, than to hide who I was and recognizing that there are so many other folks that could not do that for whatever reason. Right. And so I think about how so many massive movements happened in urban cities in this country. So mm-hmm. like not just like Stonewall in New York, but talking about the Black Cat riots in Oakland, the cafeteria riots in San Francisco, like all of these Southern movements, like a lot of things um, that happened that were highly focused in cities because there were larger populations of queer and trans people that were out in place. They mm-hmm. weren't like out in the same way like as we experienced in like 2021, but it was also a way for them to have outlets um, as well as recognizing that the only people that semi-supported queer and trans folks besides each other was like bars in the mafia. So like also queer culture being surrounded around alcohol as well mm-hmm. um, is also like a big thing um and i that's where a lot of the like appeal comes from our history is that if you are not living in a city there is nothing for you so you need to dream of something bigger which is moving out of your small town and moving into the city and living kind of like that queer dream that folks think that there is Mm -hmm. and well a lot of stereotypes is that people don't think rural queer people exist for one as well as they're all white people um and that is simply not true there are a lot of black and especially indigenous two-spirit queer and trans people that live in that live on reservations that live in rural areas that don't want to move into urban settings and i think that's something to acknowledge so Mm -hmm. i absolutely felt a pressure to move to a to to Chicago specifically mm-hmm. um especially like so so I went to Michigan State University and like there's a huge pipeline of people that like graduate from MSU and move to Chicago like that's just like mm-hmm. 50% of the people at least just do that and and there's nothing wrong with that right if if that's where you get a job and and that's what makes sense for you in your life great and like there was absolutely a pressure to like consider that as an option in order to experience queer community and also like i'm very fortunate that i had experiences where like i i learned that queer community could exist outside of urban spaces and you know that helped maybe negate some of that but i think that like you bring up a really good point tk that the what what our our queer and trans elders had to do for survival has impacted how people perceive of, of rural and, and urban spaces and what they think they may need to do to experience community. Mm-hmm. And also that queer community exists in all sorts of places, in, in rural spaces, in suburban spaces, and in urban spaces. And that that's one, like, one is not better than the other and that all are all are valid and there shouldn't be this pressure to have to go to an urban space in order to experience community. I feel like some classism has 
played into it as well. Um, and Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Kind of, but like, it seems like it's like flipped in recent years. Like, whereas before it's like you moved into the city because this is what you need to do to survive. And now it's like, the city is so expensive. Mm. And I've got friends in Chicago that are like, why would you want to live in Michigan? There's nothing there. Like mm-hmm. criticize for, you know, I don't have designer name brand clothing. Like, that kind of a thing. Exactly. You could buy six houses for the cost of one apartment in Chicago. <laughs> right, right. Yes. But also these folks are considering Grand Rapids to be the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, this is the second biggest city in the state. <laughs> I also thought for a long time um, that I was like, I need to move out of the state. I need to move out of Michigan. I need to explore. But I think about a lot how much appreciation that I do have for Michigan and I do have for rural areas within Michigan. Like legit last week, I met someone who like grew up like outside of Marquette in the UP. And so I was like, wow. So we got, so we got like a small like city like Michigander who like now runs like the largest LGBT center in the state of Minnesota. So we love that. I, I, you mentioning, you know, an LGBT center makes me think about the specifically the question about resources um, and how m- some of the perception of needing to, like some of the pressure I think of needing to go to an urban setting in order to thrive as a queer person is influenced by foundations and the funding of community centers or resource centers or whatever whatever the language is, right? If you think about like the largest community, like LGBT centers, right? Like LA LGBT center, New York, center on Halstead in Chicago, like there's some big places in these urban settings. And those, those same types of spaces in rural communities just are not funded. You know, it's much more attractive uh, to a foundation to give millions of dollars to New York or LA and they don't need that necessarily but because they because of the quantity of people that exist in that community it looks better on the application to that funder but like quantity is not about like the quality of the service provided, right? And so I think about some of these small town community centers or LGBT centers that are scraping by with pennies, but like end up being some of the most impactful spaces for queer and trans people that like, yeah, you might be only engaging with 15 or 20 people a month, but like the amount, like the attention that then can be provided to those people and the the individual you know approach that could be taken is is way more impactful i think than just being able to put on a report to a funder that yeah okay great we served a thousand people in a week but like what was the quality of that service in general when i think about folks in my ecosystem who've either been coworkers or colleagues or you know friends in these spaces that i've been in and thinking about like the pressure to move the pressure to leave um and what what that has to do with resources is that you see these turn this turnover of people especially like 
marginalized people, BIPOC folk, queer and trans folk, disabled folk, right? Like if there's nothing there that meets their material needs, right? It's extra hard to stay. It's extra hard to leave because then you might not have the resources to leave, right? But if the circumstances improve your material conditions by leaving, then I think that's mm -hmm. necessary, right? Because when I think about like, when I think about the reasons, you know, friends of mine have left Duluth, for example, right? It's because there ain't shit here that is giving them any assurance that shit is going to change, right? Like, so they either have to try to build it themselves, which is exhausting, right? And the resources might not be there. And it becomes this like circular, like just, you know, spinning your wheels thing, right? Or the long haul work has to be done, right? And so what I worry about when I think about um, you know, what, what motivates people to stay in these spaces that maybe are not as thrush with many, many, many options, like, you know, uh, major cities, right? But like, there has to be a version of that that can exist in like smaller municipalities and smaller areas that can motivate and meet mater folks' material needs. Because then if there's nothing there that's going to keep like queer and trans folks, especially in a particular more rural space, those folks will leave. And then the folks who stay, the folks who live there permanently, or the folks who have to stay there for you know longer spans of time are kind of left having to start over again and again right they might get some traction because there's some transplants who come for a job or they move for another reason thinking that this will be a place for them to be and then they get exhausted and burnt out very quickly leaving folks who kind of live in these places permanently um to have to like figure it the fuck out you know and one of the points we wanted to talk about is just this deterrence from you know folks who maybe aren't in rural spaces engaging with these rural spaces or coming to spaces right one of the examples we wanted to talk about was in years past where the conference you know mumble tech has been planned for um certain uh, states in the region we've gotten feedback right anecdotally for folks being like well why do i want to go to kansas you know, why would I want to go to Omaha, right? Or, you know, in 2016, when the conference was in Indiana, it was right as um, <laughs> a certain legislator um, who somehow rose to power in the worst way, right, had passed a religious freedoms bill in the state of Indiana, and there was cause for concern, right? Not to say those concerns were not valid, and it required a necessary conversation, but I think what worries me is that when you have folks who are outside of these spaces, A, pointing fingers to insinuate, like, these places are worse than maybe the places they currently are, which makes me wonder, like, are you paying attention to your own space? Um, but B, right, what does that mean? What does that send? What message does that send to folks who live in Indiana, who live in Kansas, or in the, the earnest of this conversation, who live in these rural areas, what does it mean when folks won't engage, right? right? Even if we're having conversations about safety and security, which we absolutely need to have, if you're prioritizing right, your safety and saying, I will not go, or I will not engage, or I will not participate in conferences or gatherings or projects or initiatives in these spaces because of the nature of those spaces, that's kind of an additional cutoff, I think, right? An additional like scythe, like an additional like gatekeeping or like a, a starving off um, of possibility for folks who are trying to grow things in these under-resourced, under like, uh, um, you know, under-attended spaces. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I have like so many, I, I have like so many thoughts about this because I think about it a lot, even with my own journey. So like when we were in the break, I was talking about how, um, like I, um, might be like, you know, trying to find a new chapter of my life. And like, for me, that might mean 
moving to um, the West Coast and I very much do not want to. Like, I, <laughs> I think it's really interesting because um, my mother talks to me about all the time how I need to get out of the Midwest and I don't need to be there. Like, you're so much better than that. Um, but I'm just like, no, this is where I need to be. And I think too, when I think about when I first took a job in Lawrence, Kansas, where I also worked at the University of Kansas, um, that was the exact thing that everyone kept asking me was, why are you going to Kansas? There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And the main thing was that when I made that decision, I was like, people need me there. I wouldn't have gotten the job if, if I didn't think that there was a need that people had. And I was hopefully going to be able to fulfill a need, which I did. Like, I feel like I made some great connections with students um, that some of them are my children now. And I love them to death. Uh, they drive me up a wall, but I love them nonetheless. Um, but at the same time, I, I would always say that there are always people in urban areas to help folks in urban areas, but there's not enough people in more rural areas to help out with them but then also realizing at the same time that the institution is just not great it's 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 just not Mm -hmm. um and so I think about like oh like knowing that a lot of us like we we solely have like a midwestern like rural perception and knowing that like rural spaces across the country look vastly different but knowing that I have friends that grew up out like in home Omaha or like in the UP of Michigan or like in rural areas in the south like knowing that all of those experiences are very very different um I still always will value my time there because um someone that I really looked up to um, told me that I was going to be fine when I, when I went there, when I told her that I applied for the job, um, and that I, and then I got the job, she said, there are good people there and you will be supported and you will be okay. And I was, I really was. And so I always think that just because like, you might not recognizably know the place does not mean that there are, that there are not great people there. Mm-hmm. And to my time in Kansas, I met some amazing people and the people are the reason why I wanted to stay. Everything else I didn't. Like the public transit was awful. Like I didn't have a car, like all that stuff. But like the people I met were like some of like are going to be my friends for life. And I love them. Um, and I think about two, um, about how a lot of these, um, oh, how a lot of students and a lot of the students that I work with, like, especially now, which I think is really interesting because I get students not only from all over the country, but all over the world that still have this mindset that like Minnesota ain't it. Like Minnesota, <laughs> we're doing like our, we're gonna do our four years and then we're gonna leave. Um, but knowing there's so much that has happened here, not even before George Floyd happened. Like this community is so close knit together that like you can't but to but to just be in awe of like what is happening. Like you don't hear of a lot of urban communities and like a lot of people don't even consider Minneapolis an urban community, but just everything is so close knit and together um 
in, in like various communities. So there's a large Hmong, the largest Hmong population is in Minnesota. They're very close and tight knit because they're, because they're all they have. There's a large immigrant population with folks from Africa, maybe Ethiopian, Somalian, um, all that stuff. There's a close knit community. Like legit, I live by um, a Somali mall like that's like two blocks from my house and it's like a really grand time it's really cool there are a, a lot of black folks who had grown up in the cities like they stay and they're like this is my community why would I leave and so I think that's a very unique perspective that has like that rural mentality of like we we have this tight-knit community we're gonna stay we're gonna continue it um and like being able to kind of see that because I've never seen it anywhere else in an urban setting where folks are like no I want to stay like and I think for me being someone who's moved here that's something really hard to like find community is that it's really hard to find community with folks who were born and raised here because they have their own communities and they don't want to let new folks in rightfully so respectfully um but yeah it's like it's just like really interesting to like think about and like how like we discount rural queer experience but we so highly value like the white cis gay man who lives um on the upper west side or the lower east side or straight uh, in like times square which like why would you do that um or like the queer like um tech bros that like live in like silicon valley mm-hmm. or live in west hollywood in la or um boys town etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. and knowing that they are only there because of the money that they make and the access that they have versus mm-hmm. all the black and brown people that live on the south side of Chicago, west side or south side or north side of Philadelphia, um, Oakland in California, um, you know, Kalamazoo, Michigan, you know, all of these places um, and all that good stuff. Also, we don't talk enough about Detroit because people don't think that Detroit's really a city because there's not a lot of white people in it because it's mm-hmm. the largest city full it's the blackest city in the country but because of all the financial hardships in the 2000s people write it off they write it off all the time and i think that's a disservice i think what i you know the many things that i appreciate you bringing up right like i think that we very readily could make so many points about how this divide right even the fact that we're having a conversation predicated around an an assumed and real divide between kind of rural communities and urban communities is based on the foundations of white supremacy period right like just like this kind of resource scarcity model is very endemic of white supremacy just kind of the the reasons folks are forced um to relocate has its ties in white supremacy and colonialism right like we can definitely map that onto a history and the characteristics characteristics of white supremacy um and just that like some of the the issues that like not to say they're not real right but they are very much a manifest of not having enough resources to be able to allocate in places and the hoarding of resources and power and then that creates a power and a resource and a knowledge gap where in my experience working with um 
<clears throat> queer and trans college students in more rural areas or who come from the immediate rural areas around where I've worked, right, is that a lot of this is new. A lot of this is very, very new, right? And so they're kind of learning things in this crash course fashion because things move maybe a bit faster than they did where they're from, or this is the first place that they've been to be exploratory, right? All these tropes of college student development um, from my vantage point, but just like the general idea of like coming into a space where there's more, which is in and of itself white supremacy characteristic, more being better, bigger being better. And so what I, one of the things that I was really adamant about bringing up in this space is that I think the danger of that one of the many dangers of that is, is this dissociation between these urban spaces, right? These threshly resourced, large-scale urban areas <clears throat> is that folks who live in these areas are kind of conditioned and enabled to remove themselves from the impacts of things that happen to rural queers, right? We see it all the time. And so one of the things I wanted to lift um, is from a book by Jack Halberstam called in a queer time and place, transgender bodies, subcultural lives, and the specific piece um, from what I can recall, it was many years ago I read this <laughs> book, but it was so captivating, right? Like as an urban queer reading this, I was like, oh shit, right? Um, Jack was talking about how some of these very high profile sensationalized instances of violence against queer and trans people, Matthew Shepard and Brandon Tina were in primarily rural areas. And so the, the, the conversations right around the hype of those situations and the violence of those situations in many ways was moved by media and was moved because urban queers couldn't fathom right, the nature of those, those violent instances happening in urban spaces. It's not to say that they weren't, right, but the nature and the context of those circumstances in Lincoln, Nebraska, and in Wyoming, right? Yeah. Um, right, so in these more rural kind of, like, um, not as, like, you know, in these states at, at, alone, but then in these more rural, um, you know, towns where the assumption would be that, you know, queer folks don't live there, right? Yes, they do. But then you've kind of got these high profile instances kind of popping up. And what that means for folks is understanding of where the work is and what work needs to be done. And so what I think about as we're, as we're tucking into this, right, is just like the knowledge gap that exists and how I believe, right, that political issues are based on urban demand, right? And so we are missing a large opportunity to really address the full spectrum of queer and trans issues because we're primarily listening to the loudest and most proximal voice. The city buildings are in the cities. They're not in the rural areas, right? The access to those spaces, right? Do you think someone who lives two hours you know, north of me in St. Louis County is gonna drive unless it's something major and pressing to the courthouse or to the city council, right? Like probably not, or to the count, you know, the county, you know, you know, spaces, right? Like not necessarily. So we're even building the possibility to engage politically around folks who are right here. And then there's priorities within that dynamic of do you own a house? Your voice matters more than if you're renting. Mm -hmm. You know, so then we're even creating these divides based on resources as we are here and then totally ignoring and dissociating ourselves from the needs of rural queers. You know, earlier I, I 
I intentionally made a distinction between like queer and gay, right? And I think that there's a big mm-hmm. difference. Like, I think that's an interrelationship here too. Is that like I'm I'm thinking a lot about like rural queers versus urban gays, right? And I think yeah. that's a big piece of it. Is that like that's that's the big distinction that I see is uh, is that there's kind of a certain assimilation that happens for example like the like there's a very clear visualization of like what a chicago gay is right and so i will mm-hmm. explain that a little bit more right so like mm-hmm. my partner and i have a, a vacation place on on the west coast of michigan right so it's it's about 2 hours outside the city of chicago and so it's really popular with Chicago gays. And you can always tell when they're when they're coming in that they are the Chicago gays because they all travel in a group. Mm-hmm. They don't engage with anybody outside of that group. They're not interested in building community with people who are different than them. And that's a very different experience versus like when Chicago queers come to that space. It's it's totally different. There's there's an openness to engaging with new people. There's a there's a, a community building that happens, and so I think there's that that distinction is important as well. That like the the rural queers are where I want to be paying attention to and uplifting and supporting, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I think whether or not you know. I I spoke earlier too about my experience growing up in a rural area, now thinking about and realizing that like, oh, there were gay people there, right? But that doesn't mean that it was the queerness that I have built community around now, right? And so that distinction is important because like, I'm not necessarily interested in like building super strong relationships with like happen to be gays, there it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I want to build relationship and invest my time and energy in building community with queer people. Mm-hmm. Right. And that distinction is important. When I referenced classism in regards to moving to the city, I mm. meant Chicago gays specifically. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hate to see Chicago gays in a room with St. Louis gays because they sound like comparable, but if anybody um, is familiar, there's a very St. Louis-ism that when you meet someone else from St. Louis, especially outside of St. Louis, you ask each other what high school you went to. And so when I've encountered St. Louis gays outside of um, St. Louis, right, and that comes up inevitably, it usually just means how repressed was your queerness in high school? Um, And usually it means a whole lot because there's a lot of private all men's um, faith-based high schools in St. Louis. And that is its own thing. That is its own mm. flavor of, oh, you're messy and you're trying to um, catch up that yeah. delayed adolescence we talked about, huh? <laughs> Oof. You're listening to Take the Last Bite, a podcast produced by the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. The Institute re-envisions an educational climate that centers the needs and experiences of systemically disadvantaged students and affirms and encourages sexuality and gender diversity. Through this podcast and other programs, the Institute provides community and connection to the next generation of leaders in the movement for our collective liberation. Building a sense of community plays a critical role in improving mental health outcomes for queer and trans youth. We are dedicated to furthering queer success in the Midwest. Our work is made possible through the generous financial support of grassroots donors. 
Your donation helps provide space for queer and trans students to experience the joy of being in community and helps remove barriers to accessing queer and trans-centered spaces. To learn more and make a contribution today, visit sgdinstitute.org forward slash giving. Um, so yeah, we've talked about kind of our own lived experiences in rural and queer, rural and queer, urban and rural areas um, and all the in-betweens, some assumptions and stigmas and um, realities and dynamics of these spaces. So I want to talk about like how all of that coalesces into impacting the work, right? The work being gender justice, sexual liberation, you know, queer and trans justice writ large. Um, so we were offered this um, question that I think could be really helpful to get us into it, um, uh, which was, what does it mean to be in a space where you can be visibly queer and not think twice about it? Because some of our anecdotes have already made it very clear that that's not the case for all of us, regardless of the types of spaces we've been in. So I really wanna talk into that question um, to start off. I think for me, this is something I'm very newly navigating. Mm -hmm. um, so one, I didn't really figure my, didn't figure myself out till after college. I'm, I'm a late bloomer. Um, so, Welcome. Yes, hi, hello. Please, I just, I am one of those folks with um, more complicated uh, identities. So I'm a biromantic demisexual, which I didn't know that there was words for that. And I didn't know what was happening, <laughs> honestly. Same. Um, I'm like, what is this? This is not a thing, um, but it is. And that feels much better. Um, but I have been straight passing pretty much my whole life and only kind of now am I, you know, I surround myself with a lot of queer trans folks. I, you know, at, for the folks uh, listening, I have, um, you know, short haircut, half of it shaved. Um, so I'm starting to get more reactions than I'm used to. Um, so, you know, for example, this past 4th of July, I did a camping trip um, in Interlochen State Park, which Interlochen, Michigan has like a big, like, music and theater school so like it shouldn't feel super straight but apparently <laughs> um the town is and was wearing one of my Embletech shirts um to the corner ice cream store and got a full stare down up and down from this family in front of me and it was like really one of the first times I've like really experienced that um and thankfully, I was with some friends who were like ready to throw down if anything had happened, but it was unnecessary. I just got the death glare. Um, so yeah, it, and then in like kind of contrast, um, Justin mentioned the um, you know resort that they stay at in the summer, and that was a completely liberating experience, despite the Chicago gaze. Um, um, I'm just going to interrupt you and say that resort is generous. <laughs> Uh, for what it is, it is a gay campground. Yeah, it's a camp. It's a gay campground. There is some gravel. There's a little bit of grass, and yes, there's a pool. But resort is generous. So going there though, where it's like just all queer folks, um, it is quite liberating, especially because it does have a pool, and being able to go to a pool in a swimsuit and not feel self conscious and objectified, like not 
you know, being subject to being stared at is refreshing. <laughs> you mentioned the uh, death glare. And I feel like the death glare that I get from people like fuels my drive to fight. <laughs> like, please, please feed me more. I'm ready to take on the world now. <laughs> I just, you know, I think that it is incredibly liberating for me when I'm in space with other queer people and can express whatever it is that I want to express in that moment, right? And it, it, it fluctuates and I'm like, whatever, today I wanna to do this, tomorrow I wanna to do that, great, cool. Being able to not have to worry about it is, is wonderful. And even in some gay spaces, I still think a lot, a lot about what am I going to, like how far do I want to push the boundary? Right. So there's that nuance too. But but I also feel I, I also will fully acknowledge that like I, as a white person, have way more room to push the boundary and am am far less concerned about my safety in those situations. Um, I think for me it's the fact that like no matter where I go, I'm gonna be perceived as a threat and I'm always gonna be perceived as something other than who I am as a black trans person like that's just like I I I don't no matter if it's rural or urban it's everywhere like I feel like it's more I feel like it's the worst in suburban areas honestly it's probably the worst there just because of the history of suburbia like we wouldn't have suburbia if it wasn't for uh red flight which was when um black people specifically black people were moving into urban areas and all of the white people fled and that's how redlining was invented like white flights was all of the white people moving out of the cities and all of the suburbs across the country is what we have today that is white flight and so I think about especially thinking about like Detroit specifically um because Detroit has a fondness in my heart I love Detroit is that if you are in downtown directly downtown has like a lot of like white attractions like that's where all of like the sporting events are that like we can have a whole conversation about um the black people specifically black men used as entertainment for white people specifically in sports but as soon as you get out of downtown when you get into Motown when you get into Highland Park like folks are like oh my god you shouldn't go to Detroit it's scary it's scary because there are black people there um not because of anything else because black people exist and having a friend who was from a small town in Michigan called Tecumseh um we were going to a show in Detroit and their and their parents didn't want them to go a 25 year old college aged woman to go to Detroit because it was scary but they had never been before in their lives um and so I think about a lot how like black and brown queer and trans folks we don't we don't get a choice we don't like we'll get the death stare like even even if we were minding our own business in an urban area just like you know we shop at like a Trader Joe's right and especially trans women will just get clocked and be like well like people will like cis people especially cis straight men will intrude on their spaces and just call them out for not being a woman blah 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 and that's how violence happens right 
Um, and so for me, I don't get a choice. My, a lot of my students don't get a choice. And so I think about a time where um, some of my students of color were made unsafe um, because of um, because a white trans person um, was drawing attention to themselves while driving across the country to a conference and they didn't understand um, the validity of what they put these folks in and they thought they did nothing wrong and when they were confronted and made more of a learning opportunity about boundaries and safety um said student decided to quit which showed me that they didn't really care about racial justice and racial um like liberation because they were putting their peers at risk um because their whiteness um, was present and that they thought just because they were queer and trans and had mental health issues that their whiteness was absolved. And so I think about that a lot. And I think about how um, a lot of Black and Brown queer and trans folks also don't have anywhere else to go. So like, especially when we move to urban areas, like we barely know anyone, we don't have the connections and we barely have, we barely know where to go to even tap into the resources versus being in our hometowns where we know that there are no resources and we are with homophobic and transphobic family members. Um, and so, so yeah, I think about that a lot. And I think about how many black and brown queer and trans people are struggling all across this country and that white queer people, no matter how they identify, are able to live that dream because that dreams was theirs to begin with. It was never ours. I think a point of connection to make, make with that, right, is just the longer standing talking points around like traveling while trans, traveling while queer, traveling while, you know, Black, right? Like all of these nexuses of, of experience were just what does it mean to go out and about in the world and be read in a certain type of way and received by other people, right? And, you know, I have my own series of stories of like carting students across, you know, states to go to conferences and just making, you know, calculated choices about where we decide to stop, um, just based on not wanting to run into issues in the middle of fucking nowhere, right? Just like, what the fuck am I going to do as an advisor, you know, bringing 20 some odd students through a gas station where like, we don't know, you know, and maybe that's super presumptuous and like unfair, but like those calculated choices, I think are things that we individually do based on you know our, our um you know identities and like bodies right like as a fat trans person who's very tall right like I don't know are you staring at me because I'm big are you staring at me because of other things like I don't know right like and all those factors I think really make it so that we have to make calculated choices and take inventory of who's in space you know and like it's no big thing for folks in the Midwest to go on eight hour drives to go see friends, right? And so there's been plenty of times where I've dropped my location because I was like, I don't even know where I am to tell you, like, if I were to encounter an issue, like, what would I even say to you? I don't know. So here's, here's my dot, right? And like, nothing has ever happened, fortunately, right? But just like the prospects, you know, the, un the uncertainty um, of kind of showing up and being in these spaces when it's not familiar and it's not... Um, you know, it's not 
public space, right? I think that's what my, you know, and again, this is something that I am happy to break if needed, right? But I think what's hard for me is that most rural spaces I, I go to don't feel public, right? They feel very off the grid. They feel very illegible. And I think that's what creates a certain type of anxiety for me of just like, I don't know where I am. So if something happens, like, then what, you know? And like, it's not even if something should happen, it's just like, I don't know where I am. And that creates a certain somatic response of just like, how do I assure my own safety? I don't have the same mechanisms to put in place, you know? And I think living in Duluth, I've had to do different types of calculating just cause like my immediate group of friends isn't nearly as like legibly queer, you know, as I've experienced in the past. Um, it's winter seven months of the year. So I'm dressing for mm. practicality, yes. not for aesthetic. So I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I, I think I'm re I'm learning a different environment. And a lot of it is right on the edges of more rural spaces in which I'm not, I'm not used to. It's just so much. I think about, too, a lot of the times how, um, like, you know, like, those travel blog type shows of, like, folks that are like, oh, well, I'm gonna, like, go cross-country, like, I'm gonna travel cross-country and visit all these cool areas, like, knowing that not a lot of those creators are Black folks. Some of them are queer, um, but I think about there was this um there's a youtuber who um i'm assuming is straight and cis i haven't felt other anything otherwise or heard anything otherwise but she was like this young black woman who decided to uh live in a van um and it was one of the first times that i really saw like someone like a backpacking like across the country kind of in that way I like follow like a straight cis black family that lived in a tiny house for four years like I think about all of these like novel things that like white people get to enjoy but black and brown people don't get to have that luxury and that it's like seen as impossible because of like all of the issues and the systemic issues that we we face like we don't get to like experience this like quote-unquote nomad I want to use a better word but I can't think of one um type of like traveler type of lifestyle when that's not afforded to us um and it also makes me sad because it, it also puts it in perspective that like it think like people think that like that can't be possible for black and brown queer and trans people is that we can't travel across the country or go around the world or live outside of the U.S. without being persecuted um and I think it's interesting to think about too with that is like there is this like queer like which is really interesting because I love that we're having this conversation because I saw a TikTok the other day that was um talking about like what 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 is something that you that like if you said it out loud folks didn't want to hear it's the fact that um oh my god what was it now I'm like blanking oh god it was so good um it was talking about not just like white people being like white queer people being as all their whiteness but it was the fact that um that um we are um 
like black and brown folks like don't get to have like the wonderlust kind of lifestyle of like oh well we get to travel we get to think mm. of all these things because of the very real violence that we face and that white queer people will absolve themselves from any form of whiteness um and not take any responsibility for racism in the U.S. and um, will always, at the end of the day, they will always default back to their whiteness because there were so many conversations of like, oh, well, I'm like a low-income white queer person. Like, of course, I understand the struggle, but you're still being racist and not... um, and not being able to like acknowledge that and so I think about it in the sense of like how like white how black and brown queer and trans folks like we don't get a luxury to leave the states that we live in Mm -hmm. so I have friends that legit are like I will probably stay in Kansas for my entire life because of my family and because we have familiar ties that are very different from from white families like we we stay because we need to help out and um yeah can it seem limiting yes but it also is a collective mindset that white people in America don't have like they are like um when I'm 18 I'm an adult I'm gonna go off on my own and their parents won't help them but they have all the means to help them because they want to test them to make sure that they're like able to like you know, be wide enough and like be able to like assimilate better and like, you know, earn their own way. And so that perpetuates onto their own children, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It's a very so, individualized yes. like, process. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I think about that a lot. And I think about how so many community communities of color just stay and you see black and brown folks leave, but they leave not because they don't want to be with their families. They leave because of how white everything is, but also putting into perspective, like indigenous populations in the United States is maybe 5% or less. And that's generous. The black population in the United States is 14%, 12 to 14 Latinx is probably like Latinx or Latine, whichever you use, is probably around the same. And um, Asian Americans, uh, Pacific Islanders, Southeast Asian folks, like, are probably sitting around 10%. Like, not gonna lie, they're all in pockets because of just the history of those areas. And now they're all being moved out because of gentrified buildings and high rent prices. And knowing that traveling for folks means for them that they are just trying to find other places of community which usually is urban centers mm. i had so many thoughts y'all I, so many thoughts. I was gonna say i really feel like we've unearthed quite a few like subsets of this conversation and i think this has been just quite a solid primer for things that I want to see us explore um, in the future, right? Things around, you know, capitalism and its effects with like housing and geographical location, the myth of borders, right? Just like, I think there's so many pieces we could tuck at, right? Um, And I I think too, what I I, um, think would be a good place to just like put an end cap on this to spark us elsewhere you know, is just to do like a quick round robin, right, of like final thoughts, but specifically around, um, you know, anything that's pressing, right, anything you want to add as we wrap up, but then, right, like what is 
maybe some of the most pressing things in this moment that would be really uh, necessary to address regarding a rural urban dynamic as it pertains to Midwest queer and trans movement work right now? My parting thought in is, is that queer people exist in rural spaces, have existed in rural spaces, and those people deserve resources and funding. So I would just throw out into the cosmos a challenge to funders to put more money into rural communities. Something I'm sitting with as we end, right, and is something that I, I think in a future conversation will, will emerge, right, but I'm thinking about how this intertwines with other like movement work or other facets of movement work, thinking about geographical location, thinking about some things that like Justin and Michelle for sure brought up around like agriculture and farming and food. I think about food and security. And I also think about like the impacts of this like weird geographical splicing as it pertains to like the climate crisis, thinking specifically around conversations that have identified Northern Minnesota, for example, as a potential future like climate refuge because of the patterns we're seeing in other areas that may become uninhabitable. And what does that mean when we already have like these really shitty dynamics and divides between spaces where food is being grown and like all of these other like agricultural necessities are happening, right? What is the impact on food supply? What ways do we need to equip people with the knowledge and, and bridge that knowledge gap around sourcing like your own material needs and food and building shelter um, in preparation for the reality of some of the shifting that will happen because of the continued climate crisis? And how does that impact Midwest queer and trans folks? Cause it's not like we can just have like nothing Right. It's not like we can't consider like what resources need to exist in a circumstance where folks are now saturating into areas because other other geographical places are uninhabitable, which is terrifying. But also, right, like if um, if I'm already stance be on this on this like recording saying that like Duluth really and got its shit together for queer and trans folks, right? And we're also supposed to be prepping prepping infrastructure-wise for a possible surge of people because of, of weather. How are we going to receive queer and trans people? How are we going to receive, you know, QT BIPOC folk in ways that we are very ill-equipped to do? So we're going to have multiple pressing, you know, dilemmas on our hands and like we're, we're not ready. And any other geographical locations that have to accommodate for that also just like aren't ready. Yeah, I would love to dig deeper into farming and sustainability and all of that for sure. Um, I think something that's resonating with me is something TK said about um, like wanting to stay in the Midwest in more rural spaces and, you know, be here to be, you know, of help to other people in the space um, and just think that's really powerful. It was like if you have the bandwidth and the you know, ability to help others, other rural queers that that's like a really powerful thing to do my final thoughts um would be that we need to stop as queer people um centering white supremacy in queerness um because that's the only reason why we have all of this monolith is because of white supremacy um but also at the same time um really digging into what your community has because you might not even know that things exist that you didn't think existed um so 
as much as I want to keep diving into this, that I think is a really good place um, to satiate folks' appetite um, on this particular um, episode of Take the Last Bite. So I just want to name deep appreciation for y'all contributing and sharing some of your personal stories um, and just having a gay old time with me um, this evening. So with that, I think um, that is that is this episode of Take the Last Bite at the end. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>